0: Hello and welcome to this Stock Talk podcast. It's brought to you by the Farm Advisory Service. It's produced by Kirsten Blackwood and I'm your host, Robert Ramsey. So I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, Leslie Wiley, who's a beef specialist working for SEC's Livestock team. So your job, Leslie, your background, I suppose, is really in beef supply chains and and processing. Uh, And I know a lot of your specialist work is... um, you know, market driven, and, and certainly at the at the finishing, um, what Where are we at? What, the, obviously, markets of of every commodity going are, are all over the place at the moment. But where is where is the beef job going at
1: the moment? The beef job has, is as good as it's ever been in terms of the price. Um, the price that's available at the moment we're looking at 440 to 450 pence a kilo dead weight at the moment, um, which we've never never seen before. Um, so that's a real positive. Um, obviously the challenge is that all the costs have gone up, probably more than that. Um, but I still think we need to look at the positives that the beef price is getting to a level where we we thought it needed to be before the price increases for, for the cost, uh, for the inputs. Um, so that's a real positive for that. And, and there's there's demand, which is good. Um, And we are now in Scotland, tracking about five pence above the English price, um, where historically, for the last four months, five months plus, we've been trailing behind the English price. Um, So that's rebalanced itself. Um, Numbers seem to be getting tighter um, in terms of um, slaughter, cattle that are coming forward to slaughter. just as it always does at this time of year um the housed cattle come to an end and there's less young bulls being finished as bulls which would normally come out may june july time they, there there is less of them about so there there's an ongoing concern that there won't be enough cattle to meet demand as you get into the summer months and that's when historically you've seen a peak in the price about august time looking forward i i don't anticipate a huge drop in the beef price um, into this summer um assuming that demand maintains it's, the level it's at um which is always a difficult one to gauge. Um, but it's on that side it's positive. another really on one side a good a good story, but it's also got its own challenges is the cow trade being as strong as it is. Um, so deadweight cows are about 390 plus. Um, and you see them in the market, the live market reports. £1,900, £2,000 pounds, um, which is a lot of money for a cull cow and that's that's great um, as long as that cow's been replaced back into the breeding herd. Um, I have my concerns if they're not, we'll end up with a loss of critical mass in Scotland which will affect the ability for all processors to remain in business which will create less competition in the market and so on and so on. So um, yes, good cull price but just as long as it's been replaced. Um, so yeah, though on those points, really, really good prices there. And following on from that, the store trade's been remarkably strong for for forward stores this this spring. Um, really, you know, two seventy pence plus um, for a good five hundred kilo cattle is is a very strong trade indeed. Um, and a lot of the suckler cow guys I'll tell you that's where where it needs to be to make it work. Um, a lot of the finishers will tell you that it doesn't work, um, but that's it's really good. Um, what seems to be driving that is actually a reduction in the number of stores coming forward. So I think there's about 4% less stores sold for the first three months of this year compared to last year at this time. Um, so that and the strong beef price will be pushing that store trade for those shorter keep cattle. Um, the longer keep stores, so the younger ones that would be potentially going to grass and not finished until January, February next year onwards. We've yet to see a lot of them in the marketplace, but they don't look to be as strong a trade just because the, long, the long-term the long outlook's really difficult to judge where the beef price will be. We know that feed prices are going to be difficult and challenging going into this winter. Um, so whether that has a knock-on effect to some of those cattle... And making them a little bit cheaper. But what I would say on the plus side to that is if you have feed available to you, there might be the option of some slightly easier bought stores to take you through the winter. So a lot of these beef prices depend on where demand sits. COVID showed us that if consumers only had the choice of retail, they would support and buy um they would buy quite a lot of beef and that bolstered trade. Um What challenge we've got now is the consumers are facing really large increases in their cost of living, and it's as to what extent they tighten their belts with their shopping basket um, and what that means um, for beef producers. And generally, the consumer will switch to either a cheaper protein source, such as historically chicken and pork, um, but they also switch to a cheaper beef alternative. so you look at like they would maybe move from steaks to mints and, and such like and that seems to be driving a lot of the demand for the cull cow cows because there is a global shortage of manufacturing beef what they call visual liens and um so that's what's driving a lot of this really strong cow trade really strong young bull trade in europe um i think in germany there were about six six euros a kilo for young bulls which is just about five pound a kilo um, and so globally all the big beef producing nations are are finding this real tight supply of mincing product um, and that is driving a lot of the beef prices and globally the beef prices is, is strong globally so I mean that's a real positive that's really positive that there's a demand out there and and I suppose there's a shortage and that's why why the, the price is so strong um, I think we
0: can, we can be fairly confident in the moment Leslie that The the worry with Brexit and trade deals and stuff was that we would be swamped by cheap stuff. And actually all the places where the cheap stuff we were fearing would come from are actually getting a better price than us at the moment. So at this stage, I certainly think it's domestic and Irish production, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. There isn't these these, um, countries that we did the trade deals with. They're either got so much domestic demand that they don't need to export to us or they actually have found a route into Asia, which is a much more lucrative market than where we are. Um, and that's why you're seeing normally or historically, if there was a shortage of manufacturing beef, you would get a lot of South American beef coming into to Europe and the UK to fill that, but actually they, they're finding that they've got a route into to Asia that's that's serving them far better than we could so um we're not actually seeing that volume of beef coming in from there um so that's that's a positive and do you see at the moment do you see a change
0: you know looking forward and it's crystal ball stuff and i'm I'm sure no one will hold you to your answer here but um do you think this will change the face of the beef sector do you think this is one of those points in in time that you know from this point on what we do is going to be different
1: i think yes i think we're we're kind of in a time where there's like a perfect storm going on we've had rumbling about for the last so many years that the, the carbon emissions argument and and what we're doing and how we really need to relook at our efficiencies and things um and then we've obviously got these these input costs the feed the fuel the fertilizer rising at our unsustainable rate really and um, on top of that we've got a, a challenge that we've had as an industry for a while now where the average age of beef producers is quite high and so you would think there would be an exit from the industry in in a number of years of that number of farmers so there's a lot of stuff going on there which has the potential to really change how beef production in Scotland looks um, you know, and that in a way, it's quite exciting. Um, it requires a lot of resilience from the guys in the job, um, because I think we are going to have to relook at, you know, if this is where the new norm is, where the price is, something has to change because it's not sustainable. Um, and that, you know, I don't want to be depressing, but <laughs> but I think there's opportunities for it to change. And there's opportunities there to make your business work, even with inputs where they are. But it does require a lot of change and it won't happen overnight and there will be a, a level of pain with it. Um, but but there's definitely opportunities out there even with those those really challenge those challenges.
0: Yeah, I think as you see, there are people who are at that stage, you know, people in their sixties, seventies, eighties, some of them still farming and, and and there is a point where you look at a, a crisis situation or a, or a big change situation like we're in, and, and some of these people sh- should look at alternative options. But for for the majority, for the or for the certainly the younger end of the industry, that what we need to keep in mind is people aren't, you know, their diet isn't, or the demand is still there for beef. Mm-hmm. There's still a need to produce beef, and and the the issues that we are facing are global issues. So. The normal will have to change. You know that we will have to find a new normal, and the sun will come up, the grass will grow, and and there's a need for beef production in Scotland.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely, and it is. It's just about yeah. we all have to individually look at our systems, and and work out what we can and can't do with the current challenges that are going on. Um, there's a there's a lot of people, and you know, we've been really Good recent, you know, in recent years, and we've we've built up really good cow numbers, and we've we've been so chuffed at having all these x amount more cows than we ever thought we could have. But part of that's probably down to the the cheaper inputs at the time. Fertilizer was not an expensive commodity. Um, feed prices weren't exce- exceptionally high, and um, that allowed us to run a lot more cows, probably than our land historically would carry. Um. And I think now is maybe the time that we really re- look at that, at least with, with the way input prices are, to bring it back to a level where the reliance on, on so many of those inputs is, is reduced to, to make your business weather this storm.
0: Leslie, in your free time, it's same as me, you're a, a beef producer as well. What I know none of us have all the answers at the moment, but what kind of things, if we're going broad brush across the industry, what beef and sheep type producers do? at the moment what's the the kind of headline things that we should be aiming to um to deal with this year to back down the hatches a bit
1: um it's not groundbreaking stuff i mean you'll a lot of you have heard it all before it's the in terms of fertilizer it's it's making sure your soils um your soils are right test test your soils lime lime's so much cheaper um and such a valuable re- resource um you know, if, if your ground's needing it, it can make such a big difference. Yeah, the grassland, the use of grassland, I think, certainly there's some guys making a really good job with their grassland um, rotational grazing um, and really, you know, getting really good utilisation out of that grass. And I think it's something that we could probably all learn something from. I'm not saying we all go rotational grazing, but I think better grassland management and, and doing more with grass I think we'd all like to be in that situation where we're less reliant on bought-in feed. Um, so I think there's there's definite opportunities there on farm, on farm for that and not even, you know, in the immediate, you know, the, the whole putting clover into your sward, that's not an immediate solution, but it will help you, you know, long-term over the next couple of years, you know, build up a bit of nitrogen there without buying it in a bag.
0: I think the on the rotational grazing thing, you know, we have that drum's been beaten for a long time and there's some folk very passionate about rotational grazing and very into it and some folk aren't really going that down that road. The thing I think to keep in mind is what the principles of rotational grazing are a short graze and a long rest. And actually it's the rest period that's the important bit. and supposing, you know, you've got you you're not gonna rotational graze or you're not gonna certainly paddock graze, if you've got two lots of cattle in two fields try one lot of cattle you know put, put the two lots together and graze those two fields in rotation graze one and graze the other and and that rest period will grow you slightly more grass you know there's some really simple things we can do to start that journey and, and to give it a go and see if it's um, see if it's viable where you, where you are so finishing diets I know you've done a bit of, a bit of work on cost things and things wait what what do the finishers do at the moment? You know hopefully as a store breeder myself hopefully the finisher's go and spend loads of money on on store cattle but you know they obviously need to there needs to be a margin in this job and and feed is feed's going to be, be a real challenge what what does it what does the finishing world look like
1: um it's a difficult one at the moment you see there will be a, a lot of people still on a contract for bought forward feed um they'll either be coming out of it recently or or be due out of it soon. Um, and that's, you know, I think they've been cushioned to a certain extent from the, the, the rises in the feed price. Um, they've been very aware of them, obviously, but I think they've been cushioned to a certain extent and we'll start to see going forward a bit more challenge in it because I've done a few questions on heavier store cattle, 550 kilo store cattle and... The costings, depending on what kind of diet, so you can go from a silage, silage with a bit of barley, a bit of soya, at two pound fifty a day, to uh, intensive, basically ad lib cereal diet with a bit of um, dark grains and a bit of straw in there, and it comes out about four pound a day, um, which is a little bit scary. Um, and I suppose the key, the key things to remember from that is to target your ration and make sure you know what the the cattle that you've got are able to do. Um, You want them to maximize their performance. So if that ration is supposed to get you one and a half kilo a day, you want those cattle to be doing that one and a half kilo a day. Um, So really look at, you know, keep monitoring those weights. Make sure they're actually performing. To a certain extent, if they're up to just about kill weight and they're not performing, kill them because they're costing you a lot more than the feed price if they're not putting on that weight that you need them to um so other ways to kind of keep the performance going on them is making sure they've got access to clean water making sure they've got enough access to the feed they're not fighting over access to that feed um, you know there's enough space at the trough for everyone um, ensuring that they're healthy so you know the usual fluke worms um any respiratory vaccination programs that you can do um and just yeah, anything that would hinder performance um, will really eat away at any possible margin that you have. Um, and and yeah, just ensuring that they're comfortable in their in their housing, if that's you know if they're housed, um, dry bedding, plenty of space, all these kind of things make a difference as to whether those cattle can actually achieve the the weight gain targets that you want them to. Um, so. So, yeah, it really is about making sure that all these things fit in place. Um, and, yes, the feed's expensive, and, and yes, it, 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 the margin's going to be tight. Um, but if you can get those cattle to perform, you know, that's your best way of, of coming out of it.
0: So we've covered a lot today, Leslie. What, what would be the three take-home messages or, messages or the three key things that farmers should go away and do uh, as things stand at the moment.
1: I think they need to go away and look carefully at their system, their current system, and what's working and what's not working. What do they like about it? What do they don't like about it? What, where's the real pain points within that system? And and speak to someone, see what changes you can make. You know, nothing too drastic, but there, there might be changes that you can make to that system to make it work better for you. And, and maybe make it less reliant on some inputs. I know that's not, you know, applicable for everybody, but I think I think there's room in most people's systems to to, to tweak some things that might just help. I mean, there's going to be realistically there's going to be some pain, but you know, I think we need to look past that to, to the longevity of your the longevity of of your business, um, and there will have to be some changes made to do that really look at your systems. um, And um, as Robert said, you know, look at those rations, look at your health plans, all these little things, anything to maximise the performance from what you've got um, will really help. I think we're all quite aware now with the fertiliser of of what we can and can't do to maximise the potential and the usage of it. The key things to remember is we've got a global and a domestic demand for for beef production. Um, we have record prices for all classes of stock, you know, um, and that gives us a good grounding. And then I know the costs are out with our control, um, but I think by looking at our systems and and tweaking them both in the short and long term, you know, we can ride out some of this. Um, you know, the, the market, the, the feed markets, they'll change, you know, as we get closer to harvest and, and post harvest and whenever Russia and the Ukraine situation gets resolved. Um, you know, so I think if we can make our businesses slightly more resilient to some of these input costs through, you know, a change in their system, be it more grassland based or producing more homegrown cereals or or even homegrown proteins.
0: So, Leslie, we, I'm sure we could talk, in fact, we have done in the past, we could talk all day about where we're at and where um, markets are going and what the thing's going to look like. But hopefully for our listeners, that's been a useful insight into where the market's going and certainly some things we should be focusing on. Um, for me, I think the important thing that everyone needs to do is just keep, keep in mind we're not. We're all in this together. We're all in the same position. We don't really know where it's going, but for me, there's enough positives to, for for individuals to be positive. There's enough positives on the horizon that that mean we should just kick on, get on with it, and 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 see where we uh, see where we land up. So, Leslie, big thank thank you to you for taking time out your evening, and uh, we'll look forward to working in, with you in the future. Thank you. So I'm now joined by Tim Geraghty. Tim is an SRUC veterinary investigation officer and certainly will be no stranger to people who've listened to past livestock podcasts. He's been a big supporter um, of of what we do and and certainly uh, keen on extending the messages from the vet lab and giving tips to to farmers as to how we can make improvements, uh, particularly with a focus on health planning. So hello to you, Tim. Where are we at? In the vet labs at the moment, Tim.
2: So this is busy season for the vet labs. So we always expect our sort of peak workload to come in in March and April. Really, Uh, increases through February and decreases through May would be typical. But March and April are busy, Um, and this year's been no different. So I'd say, uh, you know, for for obvious reasons, the the seasonal uh, lambing and calving uh, has a big impact. Um, The I get from our point of view. Nobody likes using us because often when you're using us, it's because there's problems, but at the same time, if there are problems, far better, far better that, you know, that people come to us and, and use us and, and try to learn as much as they can uh, when when things aren't right. Um, the, the In terms of what we're seeing, it's, there, there's things we see all the time. So we, <clears throat> we do typically see a, a spike in Yoni's diagnosis. I, I think that's to do with the stress around calving and transition um, tends to, you know, Cattle with yonis will, will often go clinical uh, just at the point of calving or shortly afterwards, So, and that's come through all of the different centres where we're seeing yonis at the top of the list, but that's very predictable and expected. Um, we're seeing, in terms of the, the more seasonal things, uh, unfortunately, and, and taking a beef slant, perinatal uh, perinatal deaths in suckler calves, so we would class that everything from stillborn Dying, let's say in the first day or second day of life, Um, and and we're seeing them them coming through. And essentially, I think those are often not investigated, but all in my view, always worth looking at. And and they split into calves where there was something wrong before calving even started. Um, So maybe the placenta has been completely insufficient, or there's a malformation there that's not obvious uh, to the outside. On the outside, Uh, we get ones where there's an infectious disease, so an ascending infection. And infections come up into the uterus just at the point of calving, Uh, and we've 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 diagnosed one or two of them this season again. Uh, We get the ones with anoxia, so where it's it's actually been the hard calving has 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 been the problem, and we can. um, It's difficult to be absolutely definitive on that, but you get good signs that it's there. And then, in terms of those ones that die in the first one or two days. All of the previous categories apply and then also new infections, disease, E. coli, septicemia or, you know, viral enteritis start coming in. And almost always that relates back to colostrum. If, you, if you're going down with E. coli, septicemia, it's, it's almost always really a colostrum issue. Um, so that's been keeping us busy uh, with relevance to beef. Um, we're getting plenty pneumonia scour are the two big health risks that don't result in a dead calf um and no big surprises in the type of agents so crypto rotavirus coronavirus um at the top of the lists and where it's been looked for because people don't always check but where it's been looked for again often underpinned actually by failure of not enough colostrum um so not, not getting enough colostrum then leaving us um leaving us susceptible. Uh, to, to, to various uh, infections um so those are that's you know par for the norm i would say that's what we would anticipate would come through at this time and we're seeing all of those things as, as normal really um we've had a few unusual cases which are always worthy of note um two that i thought we would talk to one is a uh, salt toxicity in beef cows so these cattle Salt toxicity is, is really water deprivation. It's it's one and the same thing. So what, what happens is what happened in this case was the the water went off in the shed and was unnoticed, and remained unnoticed for some time. So the the cattle got dehydrated, and then when they got when they get access to water, as you can imagine, it was uh, they they're, they gorge on it because they're they're desperate to drink, and that, that changes the salt balance in the brain. And leads to neurological disease and and in some cases death. So, so we had a, a case of that reported through to us. Um uh, we've seen a clostridial disease after dehorning, which again wouldn't be common. Like this this was dehorning of sort of five, six month-old, you know, so so that's quite in quite invasive, really, um, and leaving quite an open wound in the top of the head. And although lots of us have not normalized that, but we're familiar with it and we do it in some systems as routine. It is quite a stressful situation, and you're left with a wound. And and unfortunately, in in one case, we we saw custodial disease setting in uh, shortly after dehorning. So, yeah, probably you know where do you go with that? But certainly thinking towards polled breeds, obviously, but also towards disbudding earlier if it can be done safely uh, is far safer on the on the animal.
0: Um, I think there must be an element of you know extreme bad luck in there as well, Tim, because you see the the routine dehorning you know 99 times out of 100 or more the end result is positive you know it's a, a stressful job but um to go down with clostridial disease after it's unfortunate
2: it's certainly not common you're absolutely right and it's a that is a fair point um it, it's it's um and I'm probably being a little bit unfair because I'm it's not a procedure i like it's a procedure i think as an industry we don't necessarily need to do or we, we could at least Work hard to reduce it down to as little as possible, um, um, but yes, I, I take the point. It's not a common, it's not a common outcome, um, and there is definitely an element of, of bad luck there.
0: Yeah, my father is a a GP, come farmer, so he's a, a retired doctor, um, and he was in in part of his career, he was a a you know an A and E doctor and saw some horrific injuries road crashes road crashes the uh, industrial accidents and saw some really really bad stuff and a his most hated job the thing he can't deal with at all on farm is dehorning he just goes away out the road because it's a job that his theory is he can't explain to the animal that this is going to happen and he also can't explain to himself why we are doing it you know it's a strange one and it's a process we have to at this stage we go through, we are working with poor, poor bulls and things, but it's interesting to see, you know, I think it is a thing that we have, you said earlier, Tim, we've normalized it, we've, we've created this as a thing we need to do. But the reality is we don't need to do it. It's a, you know, it's a, if you take a step back and look at why we do it, it's a strange procedure that we've got. Um, uh, yeah yeah I, i've I, I, got I really know, used
2: that. to doing yeah absolutely that, that's that's no that, that's that's all, all relevant and and um yeah i feel for your dad you know i think i think lots of us feel like that if we're really honest when we stop and think about it so sort of, it's it's not a pleasant day is it it's not a day you look forward to i had another interesting case it, it might be worth it might make the cut but um so this was it's actually dairy it was a uh, replacement dairy heifers on fodder beet um but the reason it's interesting is that the this wasn't related to transition onto the crop which is obviously a high risk um uh, high risk moment and, and there's quite a lot out there now and how to do that safely um but it was to do with long-term what, after they have been on that crop for some time they developed mineral deficiency in their bones uh, and that leads to very very weak bones and spontaneous fractures so essentially we're getting recumbency uh, well at grass and you know you write one off to a bullying injury and then one off to a, a you know a one-off but then when two or three keep happening it needs investigated and and, and so so essentially what we think is going on there that the fodder beet My understanding is fairly limited, but as far as I'm aware, the protein and the minerals in the leaf and the energies in the bulb. And if the leaf doesn't develop well, but the bulb does develop well, then you can end up with protein and mineral deficiency. And it appears that's been the case here where we've had extended calcium phosphorus deficiency and then high energy. So they're growing really rapidly, but they don't have the calcium to have strong bones. And then they end up getting these fractures. So I think more people are probably experimenting with fodder beet and I think the transition element's been really well talked to, um, but it's just a wee warning that we do need to keep a close eye on them, you know, e- even to the point of view of mineral balance uh, when they stay on that crop for a period of time, particularly growing growing stock.
0: I'm not um, sure what will happen this year with fodder wheat based on the price of fertilizer and diesel. You know, it's an, an expensive crop to establish, and and granted with that, it's the it's still the cheapest dry matter we can get you know it's a a real cheap system if we can get that crop established but it's certainly a thing there's a lot of people talking about it and there's a lot of good there is you know there's a lot of good farm advisory service and and other resources out there and and certainly it's not the type of crop that we just want to trial and error have a go at you know i think it's worth a few nights reading and and certainly a lot of talking to people who've done it and learning from others mistakes because that's a real you know the the challenge with fodder beet is it's you know it's got a supercharged root and a supercharged leaf for different jobs, and if if they're out of balance, you know it can be as you say, the Tim, it's pretty catastrophic. Yeah, um, but, the way, that, but that managed properly, the, the job um, I say properly managed, that's an unfortunate event, but managed uh, correctly managed, it's still an exciting crop, something that's that, that's got huge potential for the industry. We've talked on, on podcasts you know regularly over the last few while and we've we've discussed you know what what occurs in the vet lab how it goes but the one area i think we maybe haven't covered is what is the procedure what is the process so if i've got an issue on farm how do i get my stuff to you to get that answer how does that what is the procedure thanks robert yeah
2: fair play because yeah we should cover this so First and foremost, phone your phone your own vet in the first instance. That's the the route to us is always through your own uh, your own vet and should be because we want everybody we want them included in any any work that we do and and they'll be best placed to help you make sense of of whatever we find and and certainly take it to that next level of how we go on go on and prevent it. So first things first, you phone your own vet, you describe what the situation is, and then between you have a conversation about whether additional testing is going to be warranted Uh, when you're dealing with live animals that are unwell obviously that's usually blood and dung and you know sample the vet will come out and take some samples and from the farmer's point of view you may not even be aware they're coming to us the sort of vet takes some drives away and 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 then deals with it from there so that's absolutely fine when and I think this is more your question when it's a post-mortem if we've got an animal that's dead on farm and you and you're and you're somewhere that you, you can physically get to us because we've got three, uh, well, we have four post-mortem room centres across Scotland now, um, Dumfries, St Boswell's, Aberdeen and Thurso. So I appreciate that doesn't cover everyone, unfortunately, and I wish it did. Um, but if you're close enough to get it to us, then uh, either you or your vet will will make a quick call to us uh, just as a courtesy to say, listen, we're bringing we're bringing such and such an animal in, and then you, you know you you load it if it's small in the back of your pickup if it's larger into a float, uh and 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 bring it in and it's 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 really as simple as that. Uh, we'll you know meet you take a brief history as you drop it off to us, uh, and then our report our telephone report is usually how we do it. So we'd phone your vet that day, having done the examination and uh, give the basic idea of what we've seen. That that comes back really quickly. So that's good. But then there is a delay because we'll usually set up not often less than three or four, but sometimes even five, six, seven, eight different tests to go and explore different possibilities. And they all take a period of time, typically up to two weeks. So you get a big bump of information when you first drop it in, when we do the gross exam and, and look and see what's there but then it's a trickle of results over a, a period of up to two weeks as we as we do various lab tests to nail down exactly what's going on. Um, and that, that one we talked about where, the, where there was this, these weak bones is quite a good ex- example of that. T- to really nail that diagnosis, we need to wait a long time to fix the bone and, and formalin and then examine that bone under the microscope. And that all just takes time. So you don't, you don't get an instant result. You have to be patient and accept that some of these things take time. But it's all, yeah. Often, the, more often than not, the case that we'll get a definitive diagnosis. We run between eighty and ninety percent of the carcasses we get in. We'll get a definitive diagnosis for, uh, which is, you know, we don't get them all, but we get we get a, a, a really significant majority.
0: Yeah, awesome. So really, the point of contact, speak to practice vet, and they'll lead you, you know, down the down the path you need to go to get the to get the answer you need. Tim, I know you've got after a week of looking at dead things, you've now got a uh, you've got to go and turn out some some uh, calves to grass, which is an always an exciting day. Uh, it's Friday evening, so I'll thank you very much at the moment, uh, and also thank you to uh, all our listeners uh, for tuning into this and hopefully they have found it useful. So big thanks to everybody. Thanks, Robert. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Stock Talk. If you've enjoyed listening, please like and subscribe or follow our podcast. Leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our contact details in the show notes below. You may also enjoy some of our other shows, such as Cropcast, our monthly panel show looking at crops and soils, or Thrill of the Hill, a show featuring guest speakers who live and work in the upland environment. Join us again next month for our next episode of Stock Talk.
2: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on
1: livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.